A reading from Samuel. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when, he, when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from this day, I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow the ground and to reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we may be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed offerings to, the well-being before, to his well-being before the Lord, and there Saul and all the Israelites rejoiced greatly. The word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians. Just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. 
The crowd came together again so that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. They had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? I'm looking at those who sat around him. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, not a great portrait of kings this morning. Uh, after all, they will take your children and make them slaves, and then they'll take your slaves, and they'll take your commodities. And you know, I think that's one of those fantastic things about having our own prayer book instead of, uh, frankly, the prayer book for the Church of England is that we don't pray for kings. And in America, I think we sort of pride ourselves in this identity of not having kings. And I think this is really a fantastic way to frame our very American resistance to not only kings, but of course, um, despots of any kind, is that frankly, they create a system in which everybody but themselves is an object to varying degrees according to where you stand in this pyramidal hierarchy. Now, we, we get this really well, and this is one of our functions of language, right? Anytime you hear the word kingdom, it sort of means there's one king. And then, of course, there's the backups, which would be like the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York in that order, right? Is that right? Is it right? Okay, that's good. And then after those people, you know, there are, well, the other dukes and barons, the high-ranking nobility. Then there's that middle tier made of, I don't know, marquises and esquires. And then there's sort of the knighted class, you know, like they have some kind of privileges, but they're you know, not that important. And then there's the merchants. And then, of course, there's the serfs, right? So we kind of resist that with our thinking, you know, even in our republican form of government, we sort of try to resist that a little bit. But, you know, the word kingdom sort of means that, doesn't it? The word kingdom means that hierarchy. And um, I suppose we live into it a bit, you know. I mean, not quite sure it's always appropriate, right? Because if there's only one king 
Is that God and then who's the Prince of Wales, the Holy Spirit or Jesus? I mean, this starts to become a little confusing, right? I mean, surely the Trinity represents an oligarchy and not on a monarchy. But um, after that, you know, it gets a little bit muddled. Like, who are the important barons in the kingdom of God? Well, the bishops, right? The bishops are those. And underneath those, do you know who comes next? The cardinal rectors. Now, that word cardinal means counting the rectors that count. Let me tell you, I am not a cardinal rector. <laughs> cardinal rectors are people at St. Martin's and St. John the Divine, you know, and at Trinity Wall Street. Those are cardinal rectors. Then there's us regular rectors. And then underneath us, I guess there's archdeacons and vicars. <laughs> and then there's lay leaders. And then there's the serfs, you know. There's <laughs> Surely that's not how God's family is organized, but in general, that's what the word kingdom sort of conjures up. So much so, right, that there's this old saying, and it's not really that old, Father knows best, right? Who are we serfs to question, you know, the gentry of the clergy? <laughs> it's a sort of a silly idea, right, as if God trades in this hierarchy of objectification. I mean, again, think about the reading in Samuel. Kings look at you as commodities, commodities to be harvested, objects to be dealt with in the king's game of chess. I can't think of a further image for God than that one. And I'm grateful because words matter. I mean, this is sort of what Paul says, you know, um, what we say reflects what we actually trust or believe, right? Um, that I read this really interesting book about 15 years ago by this feminist theologian who's a Latina theologian. And she says, you know, uh, kingdoms go like this. They're pyramids, but kingdoms, that is families, kinship, are actually inverted. In which the people with the most resources and strength and position use all of those things to subjectify people that otherwise might be objectified. And so think through this, right? Babies are at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy. They can't even change their own diapers or feed themselves. And family leaders use their leadership to bring them up. We do this not only to babies, but to our parents when we care for them, right? Changing a diaper is not beneath us. It's exactly what our strength is there to do, to raise one another up when we can. After all, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to be the servant of all, right? So Jesus inverts this pyramid of kingdom into kingdom by being the lowest to raise us up. Seems like instead of a pyramid, what God has in mind is a level field. Which is, by the way, why no one wears crowns in heaven. I don't know if you ever thought about this. As a young boy, I grew up, hey, you know, every good work you do is a jewel in your heavenly crown. But we forgot to read what happens with your heavenly crown. As soon as you get it, you throw it off. <laughs> because nobody wears them. Because there's no degrees of nobility in God's family. This is what I love about the word kingdom, by the way, because I don't say the word kingdom at any point. I don't believe in a kingdom of God. I do believe in a kingdom. So whether I'm saying 
Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be God's kingdom, now and forever. See, I can always do it, right? Fits in any hymn, fits in any prayer, and reflects exactly how I think God is calling me to be and how to function. The word works. God's kinship. And I want to suggest that's what's at stake in the gospel. You notice at the beginning and the end of the gospel story, Jesus' kin relationships, his mother and brothers and sisters, not his cousins. He had brothers and sisters. Don't tell anybody I said that. The Bible did. Um, They come to drag him away because they think he's crazy. Why do they think he's crazy? A couple of the reasons. One is, he is helping people on the Sabbath. People he's not related to. And the core issue is that the family is saying, Jesus, why are you touching people that you're not related to? It turns out, by the way, that the way you greeted family members, I don't know if you know this, I have a brother-in-law from Spain, this still happens. Do you know how, how you greet each other, family members? It's not a handshake. It's a kiss on both cheeks. I, let me just tell you, that's weird, because he's my brother-in-law. He, he's kind of stopped doing that after a couple of years of me going like that. <laughs> this is true in the ancient world, though that you only kiss people you have kinship relations to. And how interesting that when Paul writes successive letters, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That is, Christians have this reputation of giving kisses of greeting reserved only for family members for people who they weren't related to. That is, they showed with their presentation they were, in fact, members not of a nuclear family biologically, but of God's family. And I wonder if that isn't a little bit what we're invited to contemplate today. See, the Pharisees are a little bit upset, and they say something uh, that we all learned as little children. They say it in a different way. Their words are, hey, he's got a demon. He drives out demons with demons. Jesus says, listen, Satan can't drive out Satan. Uh, We taught this to our children when we said, hey, two wrongs don't make a right. Someone does something wrong, and you do something wrong to remedy it. You've not done a remedy. You made things worse. How interesting it would be if we could live into that basic value, don't you think? We tell our children that with our words, but good Lord, we don't do that with our actions. That means if someone uses hateful speech and we in return use hateful speech, we have not driven Satan or evil out of the world, we've increased it. This, I think, is the thing we struggle with as modern Americans more than anything else. The words we use, especially when we don't like somebody or their idea. But beyond that, I put before you that when someone commits an act of terrorism and we commit an act of terrorism, we didn't drive it out, we made it worse. When somebody cuts us off in traffic and we present them this lovely gesture, did we drive it out or did we increase exactly what was wrong to begin with? If you don't hear anything else I say, if we could live into that core value of two wrongs didn't make a right, God, the world would be transformed, don't you think?
I certainly would be. I certainly would be. I think that's where Jesus starts. And then he goes on to say this thing that was chilling for me as an evangelical, which is that there's one sin that's unforgivable. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I wish he'd went on to say more precisely the dictionary definition of that, because, you know, we were always just so afraid that we would do that thing and that we'd go to hell forever. But, you know, I've been thinking about it some more, particularly in relationship to this idea about being members of God's family. And, um, and once again, it's just helpful how our prayer book defines sin, which we all know sin is separation from God. So think about this in the passage. There are people who find themselves alienated from God because they're not in the right family, and Jesus goes around reconciling them with God. And people say, look, you've reconciled these people who didn't deserve it. You have an unclean spirit. Seems like any time we doubt God's ability to reconcile the irreconcilable, we are living separate from God. I mean, if we're not willing to accept that God can be reconciled with people that we can't, aren't we living separate from God? <laughs> I wonder if Jesus isn't, frankly, describing us more than he is prescribing. I wonder if he isn't saying we often settle for ordinary things like us and them instead of what God would like to do that is extraordinary us and us. This can be extremely difficult within our own families, I have to admit. But I do, I do think there's some insight into our own kinship relationship. Because I, I just want you to know, I'm related to crazy people. <laughs> now, I am not crazy. I am sure, and by the way, they would probably say the same thing about me, right? We, we are probably all related to some crazy people, you know. But because I'm related to them, I will probably have to see them again, if not at Christmas or Thanksgiving, at somebody's funeral or wedding. And as a result, I am much slower to burn a bridge with people I'm related to. Now, if we're not related, and you don't go to this church, <laughs> I might be much faster to burn a bridge, confident that I don't have to see you again. And I wonder if that isn't some of the difference between living in a kinship relationship and living outside of it. We hold on to the fact that we may have a future together, even if the present is a little awkward and uncomfortable. And that guides our behavior. As Paul says, we act out what we believe. So what if, when confronted with somebody who we really don't want to be related to, <laughs> more on that in a second, we were able to imagine that we might have a future together even only after we die. Would that change or could that change the way we treated each other? And I can't really think of a better vision for how God's crazy family works than where I was yesterday, which is San Francisco. <laughs> Talk about a crazy family. I was having some chowder at the Fisherman's Wharf, and then there was a streaking bike ride. This is when people, typically over the age of 50, decided they would ride naked 
through San Francisco. <laughs> and that's San Francisco, isn't it? I mean, it just sort of is. Oh, man. You mean I'm related to those people? In God's family, yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about being related to biking streakers. And then later, when I was going to visit Grace Cathedral, just because I thought that would be a neat thing to do, uh, there was a guy on the sidewalk who was like, I mean, it was helpful for me to think he was just having a bad trip and possibly also mentally ill because he was just, he was just sort of standing there screaming and crying in the middle of the street, mind you. And then when I came back from the cathedral, he was just laying down on the sidewalk, like, asleep, you know? And, um, God, that's my brother and my mother and my father and my sister. Sometimes I think it's easier to say that with people we don't know. <laughs> you know? And I wonder... You know, I, I had this moment where instead of thinking, God, you should just get off the drugs, man. You know, you should really just clean up and then you'll be okay. You know, I had this moment. We're reading this book for the adult forum, this moment of awe where I thought, gosh, I wonder what this guy's carrying. You know, I wonder if I knew him how I could help him carry that burden that he's carrying. I wonder if that isn't what God's kingdom is like. Greg Boyle, who wrote this book, said, you know, we actually have this, and, and, and you, 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 you're science folks, you probably know this better than I do, but he sort of says that um, there's maybe some evidence that our evolutionary biology has designed us to categorize us into groups of us and them. That our mind is really good at separation. Us and them. He doesn't use these, this next one, but sometimes we also do human, not human. And sometimes us means human, and them means not human. Greg Boyle says, you know, our head wants to do that, but God longs for us to combine what our head would love to separate and that this is an image of God's kingdom. And I know this is really weird and kind of churchy to say, you know, I'm not, not always sure how we do it. I mean, great, great, great idea and all. Um, I guess one of the things I'd, I'd love to share with you uh, that has been almost transformative for me is the sacrament of anointing people with oil. Has anybody ever been anointed with holy oil before? Gosh, I wish they gave us a magic wand instead. You know, a wand that I could wave and it would like do this transformation physically. I didn't get a wand when I got ordained. I got some oil. And, uh, you know, I was ordained in a different tradition before being an Episcopalian. And sure, we always prayed for people. People would say, you know, will you pray for me? And so we would. We would do this because this is what you do in front of kings, right? You bow your head and... You fold down. You know, the earliest Christians didn't pray like that. I don't know if you know that. This came upon when the emperor became Christian. That's who we knelt before. The earliest Christians prayed like this. 
with their hands open and their eyes open, expecting God to accomplish what they asked, you know. So we would do this sort of thing, we would pray. But then when I became an Episcopalian, um, I was at this service, we, once, every week we had this service where we anointed people with oil when they came to the rail if they wanted, you know. And we did this interesting thing, we dabbed our thumb in this oil and we'd make the sign of the cross on someone's head and we'd say, I anoint you with oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and I lay hands upon you beseeching God to nourish you with grace. And so there we sat with our hand on somebody's head, praying for them according to what they'd asked. I didn't always get the chills when I do that, but I always get a connection with a person I did not have before. And I suspect it has to do with touching somebody. Touching somebody on their head. I try to slather people with oil now as often as I can. <laughs> if you ever ask me to pray for you and I have oil nearby, I'm going to ask if I can use it. Precisely because there's this amazing family connection that happens with that intimate touch. And it doesn't stop at oil. There's a different kind of oil I want to tell you about. I know I've probably mentioned it before, but once, once a year in San Diego, we had Spa Day for the Homeless on Maundy Thursday, and I was one of those unlicensed um, cosmetologists who cut hair. They couldn't find enough people to volunteer. So I said, I've got clippers. I cut hair. I'll cut homeless people's hair. And I did, year after year. <laughs> I hope that, you know, in general, they... they Folks that came, they just wanted their heads shaved, which is pretty easy to do. That's a low threshold, you know. I got worried when women were like, you know, I'd like a layered, uh, you should sit in that chair. <laughs> there's that other guy, you know. Um, and, and I don't even know why. There's other things that bother me, but touching, like, dirty hair doesn't bother me. I mean, frankly, the people who sat down hadn't used shampoo in probably six months. They're real embarrassed about it, too. They'd say things like, I washed my hair this morning. With what? And of course that didn't matter. You know, there's the same disinfecting spray you use on the clippers after you've cut anybody's hair, your own. It has oil in it, that's why you use it. It's antibacterial. I use it after I cut my dog's hair because I have sheep shears for my dog. Um, this is what we do. So, you know, it, it's just sort of fine. And at the end of it all, you wash your hands. And again, there's this moment where you realize that this is the one time of a year somebody can have their head touched in a loving way. Maybe the problem is I didn't do it enough. I always tried to figure out how I could do it more often. I didn't know what it meant for the person getting the haircut, but I do know what it meant for me. It was a profound realization that we were members of God's family, and I showed it not just in my mind's eye, but I showed it and felt it in my body. And I wonder today if Jesus isn't asking us to take risks like that with people we don't know and peoples who, whose behavior might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable for lots of reasons. I wonder if Jesus isn't asking us to use our education and our strength and our wisdom to nourish people who don't have those things 
so that we can live as equals. Surely believe we believe God will do this when we die. So why should we wait? Blessed be God's kingdom, now and forever.